Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast. And a special hello to those of you, uh, the hardcore refuseniks, outraged at the fact that we're not officially Alpha Bunga Bunga anymore. You can keep calling us that. Um, I actually have great respect for you. Anyway, this is BungaCast. My name is Alex Hochuli. It's Thursday, the 6th of January, 2022. Uh, and I'm joined, as always, by George Hoare. Hi, George. Hi, Alex. Philip Cunliffe. Hi, Phil. Hi, Alex. Oh, that's good. Um, and uh, a, a returning guest, our good friend Anton Yeager is back on the pod. Hi, Anton. How is uh, sunny Brussels? Uh, yeah, not sunny at all, but uh, very, very glad to be back. Mm, good. No, I, I've never known Brussels to be uh, to be sunny. Um, and that's not even a commentary on the EU. You know, Brussels is, is far more than a metonym. As, as we discovered when we discussed uh, Belgium with you last time you were on. Anyway, um, just to give people a little bit of context, uh, we're back now in 2022. We've uh, we've hit the reset button. We've done a, a grand reset, if you will. Um, and just to tell you what we're looking forward to doing over the course of this year, we're going to, of course, continue uh, trying to provide deeper insight into national politics around the world, be it uh, Kazakhstan or Kalamazoo. I had to look up where Kalamazoo was before doing this. Apparently, it's in Michigan. So there you go. Um, we're not going to be doing anything about Kalamazoo. Maybe don't insult our Rust Belt listeners in Michigan, Alex. You know, like well, we don't actually think, quite. Important. We don't need to talk about them. What they need recognition now? Like, oh, hi, Rust Belt people in Kalamazoo. It's probably actually rural. I don't think it's properly. Anyway, whatever. For every two, for every one listener from Kalamazoo, we lose. We'll gain two from Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, we'll also be discussing big ideas uh, with. Very interesting guests from a variety of critical perspectives. Um, that is what we do, uh, and that is what we will continue doing. I also wanted to give a shout out to our revamped reading club. Uh, we have redesigned it for 2022 around three key themes. One, emergency politics and control. Two, cynical ideology. And three, techno-feudalism. The reading list contains everything that we feel is essential to read to understand the world in 2022 and beyond. So we hope you will join us for that. It's all at patreon.com slash BungaCast. Now, uh, today we're going to talk about hyperpolitics. Uh, now, regular listeners will know if you're new to us, I'm just going to say this and explain this out for just a second so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Phil, George and I, uh, as BungaCast, put out a book last year called The End of the End of History. And in that, we discuss a shift from the end of the cold, the end of the post-Cold War period, which was dominated by post-politics, and move towards anti-politics, otherwise known as populism. Now, what does that mean? It was basically the idea that this form of post-politics, which dominated uh, Western politics for 30 years, since from 1989 uh, until, uh, let's say, 2016, was uh, dominated by this strategy of depoliticization, of removing serious issues from political contestation and putting them away from the public in places like central banks, for example. Uh, and all of this was uh, wrapped together under an ideology of consensus, that we're all on the same page, we believe all big ideas are settled, and all that is necessary is to find the right technical solutions to social problems. And who will do that? It'll be experts will be brought in to resolve those problems. Suddenly, that all seems to fall apart after the, after the global financial crisis of 2008. And you get this rise of anti-politics, a strong rejection of the establishment, but which often doesn't seem to propose anything else in its place. Uh, it's more just pure rejectionism. One way of describing that shift, and it's something that Anton does in this article uh, of his that we're gonna discuss with him in just a second, um, is a shift from mass politics to a, a situation in which there's a void, where the people are removed from politics, people are no longer members of political parties, civic associations, and so on. Suddenly, with this return of politics in the 2010s, you find that the people are back, 
but they're back at a time when politics is weirder than ever. People are no longer uh, held together, um, encased in political organization institutions. So politics becomes much weirder and free floating. Anton's article is about hyperpolitics. Now, in our book, The End of the End of History, we talk about how that return of political energies may end up being diverted or channeled into culture wars, into new forms of culture war. And that's, I think, something that we've seen very strongly in the US, but increasingly across Europe as well. So that instead of maybe a genuine repoliticization, you get this kind of maybe somewhat superficial polarization, um, debates about culture and who we are rather than where do we want to go as a society. But I want to put a question mark on that because that's actually what we're going to discuss. Uh, Anton's article is called How the World Went from Post-Politics to Hyperpolitics. I heartily recommend it. It came out on in Tribune on the first week of January, and there's links to it in the show notes. Um, so let's actually get properly started. Uh, Anton, hyperpolitics as an idea, um, what, what does that actually mean? It seems like everything is being politicized today except the really important stuff. Yeah, really good question. Um, so I want to say that as a concept, hyperpolitics is hugely underdeveloped. I think I lifted it from a piece by Slavoj Žižek in an introduction he wrote to Rancière in the late 1990s, where he describes Rancière as a hyperpolitical thinker. And for him in a sort of bad way, insofar as he thinks that Rancière doesn't actually offer a convincing theory about how politics and policy interact or how politics can culminate in policy and how policy can feed back into politics. Whereas Shizek seems to say about Rancière, well, this is just a hyperpolitical thinker who has no sense about how antagonism or how polarization can never institutionalize itself in sort of active governance. Um, today, I think the best way to describe it is not the same as a cultural war. It's not the same as the concept of techno-populism you discussed in some previous episodes. Um, but I think we can describe it best in contrast to the concepts you've used in your own book, which is either post-politics or anti-politics, and to make clear why it is neither of those two things. So it's not post-politics insofar as it doesn't participate in this very easy liberal post-historical consensus, which basically assumes that all ideological questions are solved and politics has basically become reduced to questions of administration. So definitely not that insofar as it is intensely political. We could always say hysterically political insofar as it does have space for political disagreement and it has space for political antagonism. Well, at the same time, it's also not the anti-politics we knew from the 2010s insofar as uh, it rejects representation in the same way, but it does make very strong institutional demands. So you can see this in some of the wokeness uh, we've witnessed in the, in the last two years or some of those culture worries that in demands of reparations or for example, with climate marches uh, for uh, central banks to do climate policy, there are very, very concrete institutional demands. So it's not the case that they say, get rid of them all or throw the entire political class out. It is a form of politics which asks very specific things from the elite, but which doesn't actually conform to the models of politics we know from the 20th century either, which were mass political in which people gathered in these units after which they uh, made demands to a state. So those are the four concepts we can work with. It's not anti-politics, it's not post-politics, but it's also not mass politics. It's a sort of distinct new modality which politics takes in the 21st century, which I think is familiar and uh, very, very confusing. 
So I'm not sure I mm. fully figured out what it means, yeah. but I think in contrast, we can come to a definition. Well, I mean, so just for, for the, the sake of listeners, sorry, uh, just for the sake of listeners, I mean, and to put this discussion that we're having right here in context, I guess what's uh, at issue or, you know, kind of what's at play is a conception that we brought in our book about the shift from post-politics to anti-politics, to this kind of rejection, rejectionist attitude, um, and Anton's idea of hyper-politics, which he's bringing in as to suggest a sort of move beyond or move onwards from what was happening in the 2010s or the so-called populist decade, and that this hyper-politics isn't just that rejection, it's it's making, as, as Anton says, concrete institutional demands. I think that's quite interesting, and I'm, I'm trying to maybe give it some concrete form. So I don't know, to Anton, but also George and Phil, can we describe some concrete examples of this, of, of hyper-politics today? Well, that, that was just what I was going to ask um, Anton, if he could give some examples. Because So what you say in the piece is, I mean, you make the case that things feel like they're more politicised, like you say, kind of with wokeness, but also in terms of the way you have these kind of set-piece um confrontations over particular issues that then bounce around between people's favoured media outlets. I guess the very fact that people more strongly identify with particular media outlets and have their now their favoured spokespeople, whether it's Tucker Carlson or um, Rachel Maddow or, uh, you know, whoever it might be. Um, So that feels like it's political. Um, But I'm not sure that everything is political you the way that you indicate in the piece um feels like there is more politics and i suppose for some people it will feel like you know there's politics where they don't want it um say uh social conservatives who might be kind of um put out or confused or disgusted or angry, say, about um, disputes over transgender rights, for instance, and they won't understand why these issues that they took for granted are suddenly being treated in an entirely different way. Um, But that's not to say everything is political in the way perhaps that things were kind of divided left and right in the Cold War, you know, where you had kind of um, where architect, you had left-wing architects and, you know, kind of free market affiliated architecture or where you have um say you know different kind of plans i don't know colonizing space right down to um you know consumer goods or kitchen kind of urban urban planning and kitchen design so i suppose you know when you say everything is political do you mean it literally or do you mean the sense that politics is kind of suddenly things are political in a way that they weren't in the air of the deep freeze? Yeah, very good question. Um, And I want to make clear that I don't want to come across as somehow, I wouldn't say serenading or somehow approving of this new situation as salutary or containing a sort of emancipatory core. Um, I don't think the politicization we're actually currently seeing at the moment is in any way more than superficial. And in another way, it's extremely, extremely superficial, but something can be highly one dimensional, but very intense in that one dimension. And I think that's precisely what we're talking about in the case of hyperpolitics. So I think the concrete examples we can talk about is precisely these uh, demands, which are, for example, made for within the Black Lives Matter protests for reparations or for all kinds of institutional forms of redemption, which are sometimes quite institutionally ambitious. So if you actually want to enact the proposal such as reparations or 
if you actually want to overhaul a middle school, school curriculum, that is quite a task, um, which will require quite some resources and quite a lot of adaptation on behalf of other people. If you have, for example, teenagers working on these climate marches, which are asking for central banks to do specific forms of green QE, there are also, also like institutionally quite ambitious demands, but they're very, very narrow in that they either presume that experts will solve the question for you or the action we need to take is purely, purely individual. So if you make decisions on individual level on who you date, what kind of products you buy, what kind of people you interact with, who you follow on social media, then the collective uh, solutions or the collective results will follow automatically. Uh, it so it seems to me- to be high- Go ahead, sorry. sorry, sorry. No, I was just going to say that it seems to me like, I mean, especially what you're describing is that often there's no mediation between some very grand demands yes. often wrapped yeah. up in a lot of cat- 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 catastrophist rhetoric. I mean, if you think about climate change, well, at the same time, there's no mediation between that and then the actual very specific measures which are being demanded. Um, there's no, maybe there's no politics there, politics in the sense of the way that demands or, or ideas are channeled through to the actual implementation. Um, I don't know. Is that, yeah, I was going to say, that tally with what you're saying? Or the back of what Anton was saying. So, but is that, yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it just what you said, Anton, the idea is it's if you do these things, that the result is kind of spontaneous. I mean, that was the sense of what you were saying, right? So if you do the, you know, if you shop in the right way, if you um, if you and everybody else kind of adopted the appropriate behaviors and consumed the right information, there would be no need for any kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like, trade-offs between different social groups or the imposition of social costs on disproportionate social costs in one group over another, which requires kind of, you know, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of the kind of the classical model of politics where those um, this collective decisions are taken through representative institutions, negotiations, conflict, and so on, and that all of that doesn't happen. And so it's still a kind of, like Alex says, unmediated vision of politics, almost uh, almost still a kind of a marketized vision where everything happens through the kind of this uh, spontaneous alignment through modification of consumer behavior, essentially, and that the result is automatic. Yeah, definitely. No, I, th- I think that's a perfect summary. And it shows that you could almost call it a Hayekian form of politics and that there's a spontaneous order which will institute itself once we all make the right individual consumer choices and then there will be a collective result which will be emancipatory. And I think you can see it most explicitly in the techno-populist proposals you discussed before about Extinction Rebellion and these people's assemblies is that you basically have the complete shortcutting of mediation in that through sortition, a random group of citizens is put into this assembly, which is then advised by experts who of course have the right opinions on the particular climate question, who then propose or compile a list of suggestions, which are then handed over to experts and technocrats who will then implement it basically by decree through emergency politics. And the degree of involvement or the degree of polarization you see around these questions is hypothetical. But as you say, there is no moment for mediation in which, for example, the existence of a conflict of interest is even acknowledged. So the way Extinction Rebellion looks at the climate crisis is that you have nature and humanity and humanity preys on nature and what needs to be done is that humanity re, uh, reconceives of its relationship to nature. But there's never a question, for example, of what actually the vested uh, institutional legacies are, for example, of a, a carbon coalition or uh, carbon sectors, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it. I think that the sort of starting point of the hyperpolitics thesis is quite like, 
it is quite plausible because now everything is is small p political you have like and part of this is driven by those um those hated academics who do things like the the politics or the international relations of hello kitty or like or you Reynolds in scotland or anything like this um you might recognize some of these examples listeners um but yeah i mean like it seems like that's that is a um that isn't something which we all recognize like it, it's and it's definitely the flip side of that exclusion of the big questions from political discussion if you're not kind of like if if the economy is not up for grabs then where does people's uh i don't know dissatisfactions people's agonistic energies all those sorts of things um they it gets transferred to a whole range of consumer behaviors things which form your identity things which distinguish you um from from others in a similar sort of social context i mean i guess my sort of like i guess my question back to you anton would be like it, it, are the people who are doing this hyper politics essentially like pmc types like is this is this like um turning of the the focus of politics onto identitarian concerns and some of the other things that you talked about is this pr- predominantly being led by fairly small kind of groups of of people within all these different national contexts um because they they essentially have the uh they're in the material situation to turn these kind of cultural um battles to their material advantage um, I, I'm not entirely sure it's, it's that class exclusive or whether there is a group of people who seem naturally interested in politics, whether it's a sort of institutional or organized politics and which always seem to have a stake in some of these contests. But what I'm talking about with hyperpolitics is also this broader cultural mood, which really runs across the entirety of society. And now I'm giving kind of anecdotal evidence, but I see it even in my friendship circles with people who I've known since my early school years, who I would describe as profoundly anti-political, with not even the faintest interest in questions of politics, but who in the last two years, the last three years, mainly as a response to events such as COVID or even the anti-police brutality protests or the sort of general anti-racist favor, suddenly find themselves in the, uh, sorry, suddenly find themselves in a process of really chaotic and rapid politicization. They suddenly have opinions and views of all these issues and they really want to make them heard without questioning their moral credentials in making these points, what's very typical about it is that these are not necessarily professionals, they're not necessarily people who have a background of an interest in politics, but who suddenly feel as if um, politics or certain political opinions or behaviors, as Phil said, do in fact matter. They acquire an almost existential uh, stake. And sometimes I feel with other friends who have been interested in politics for a longer time, that it almost makes them yearn for a type of post-politics where they say like, oh, I, I wish I wish we could just go back to a time where people didn't actually have opinions on mm. these issues. Or I, I don't need to hear what my, what my aunt thinks about, um, <laughs> pick any sort of yeah. that has happened in, in, the, in the last uh, well, I, I, years. And I think that's quite a distinct change. And that's what we, I mean, that's what we've, we've described as neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, this kind of nostalgia for a relatively recent past when things were quieter. And I guess one way of um, putting hyper politics in kind of much more effective terms is just that everything is very noisy. Nothing moves, but everything is very noisy. Hey there, this is just a quick note about the Bunga Cast Reading Club. 
There are various local reading clubs being set up in various places around the world, and if you'd like to form one or to join one, you should let us know. We've already had people come forward in the following cities, Amsterdam, Philadelphia, New York, Tallinn, Estonia, Berlin, London, San Francisco, Bay Area, and LA. So if you're interested, email us at info at bungacast.com or comment on the Patreon and we'll try to get people in touch with one another so that you can arrange locally to follow along and discuss the works every month and have that interact with our recorded Reading Club episodes. All right, back to our discussion with Anton. George hinted at a, a very important question, which is kind of who is doing anti-politics? What are the, uh, excuse me, who is doing hyper-politics and who are the institutions and actors? But before that, I just wanted to kind of finish maybe filling out this idea and giving color to this notion of hyper-politics. So we are, we're all on the same page. So listeners are on the same page. One way that you describe this is that uh, as a permanent Dreyfus affair, and I thought that was quite interesting. Can you describe maybe first for listeners who might not be familiar what the Dreyfus affair was and what a permanent Dreyfus affair would be today? Well, yeah, the Dreyfus affair happened in the close of the 19th century in France, where this uh, French military officer, officer if I'm correct, yeah, Officer Dreyfus, um, was basically accused of treason to the French Republic. And then um, there was a big question whether the people in the military who were actually prosecuting him ha- had a case. And it split France across all these political lines where some people thought he was, in fact, guilty, while others thought. He was not guilty, but one of the typical ways in which the Dreyfus affair was portrayed in the media at the time, but also how it went down in history, is that it split families right through the middle. So there are these famous cartoons or these famous drawings in late 19th century France where you have a family dinner where everyone gets together. And then it says before they discuss Dreyfus and then after they discuss Dreyfus and after they discuss Dreyfus, everyone's basically on the table smashing each other's heads up with uh, cutlery and everything descends into, yeah, basically a riot. Um, and of course, <clears throat> what was spe- specific about the Dreyfus affair is that it had these very personal effects, but there were also these organized party blocks or organized political blocks that did acquire a stake in it. So you had socialist position on it, you had a monarchist position on it, you had a sort of proto-fascist position on it. Um, but the way the right often talks about these woke panics nowadays is precisely as if politics intrudes into the private or the personal sphere to a degree they find highly, highly uncomfortable. Um, But since it's not just about this one figure, namely Dreyfus, um, but the political questions are so ubiquitous from structural racism to the climate crisis, anything can be the object of or a cause Mm. of political polarization. So you can go to a lunch meeting with work colleagues and you can suddenly find yourself discussing the question whether Black Pete is racist. So Black Pete is this blackface tradition you have in the South of the Netherlands, which is obviously racist. But all of a sudden, you can find yourself between two warring camps. Are people defending that as not racist? Um, is, it, oh, is this just some anti-Dutch kind of uh, tirade you're about to go on? Oh, yeah, yeah. It is um, It is a massive, massive issue, certainly in the Netherlands. So Flanders, because Flanders doesn't have that much political conscience anyway, but in the Netherlands, certainly for the last five years, this is a sort of cyclical occurrence that every early December when this children's uh, feast takes place, there is a massive, massive debate about whether Black Pete should remain or whether it's not. And I don't think anyone is going to deny that it's obviously a very, very 
racist symbol, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself the question, just imagine a public debate, which is exclusively polarized for three weeks around the question whether this children's feast, which happens once a year on one day a year, um, is racist or not. And that produces yeah. specific political culture, which is interesting in itself. I mean, what, what strikes me in hearing you describe this, you know, this sort of permanent Dreyfus affair, this idea that it's intensely personal, that it, it's politics obviously filtering down into intimate life. And of course, you know, as Phil has already said as well, social conservatives often react against that because it's politicizing things that they were that were taken for granted and completely naturalized. But what strikes me is that this is almost also the other moments in history when you have this intense personalization where politics comes into the home and kind of tears everything apart is kind of either moments of civil war or, or, or proto-revolutionary moments. And it's almost like, and I've said this before in a, in a different context, but it's almost like we're in a proto-revolutionary moment or a pre-revolutionary moment without a revolution. It's like, you know, the, it's all the whirlwinds of, of revolution swirling around in your intimate life, but at the kind of level of politics proper, things don't really, aren't really shifting. You know, there aren't, people aren't storming, um, storming any palaces, let's put it that way. Although yeah, I do know, I do know that we're recording this on the sixth of January, and some people will be like, "Well, actually, just one year ago, people did yeah. storm the palace." But you know, and those storming palaces in Kazakhstan, apparently as well, which you mentioned at the outset of the <laughs> Kazakhstan's just going to hang over this the whole, the whole discussion. Anyway, do you have do you have like a thing a whiteboard three hundred and sixty four days without a palace storming, and then you have to get back to <laughs> get back to zero when we have one tomorrow? And I, I think the sort of pre-revolution without actual revolutionaries or, or revolutionaries without a revolution is a valid analogy. At the same time, I would caution against the idea that this is wholly unprecedented, that we've never seen this in the course of modern history. So American history is full of these proto-cultural instances. If you take something like the Scopes trial or the Scopes monkey trial in the 1920s, mm-hmm. which is about the question of teaching evolution in Tennessee public schools, um, there was intense, intense polarization and debate around this question, while at the same time, the stakes didn't seem that high, certainly in an America which was to hit the worst depression uh, only five years later, for example. So I wouldn't say it's completely un- unprecedented. Um, what I do think is, um, how shall I put this? What I, what I do think is that it's not just reducible to culture wars insofar as Um, it's not just about questions of culture. So it can concern questions of policy. It can concern questions of statecraft in some ways. Um, It doesn't preclude the fact that it can include those factors. But at the same time, it's extremely one-dimensional in that it has no sense on how you mediate between the sort of basic political level and then the level of policy. And the clearest example I always give is when you see European politicians marching in those climate marches, while they're in government themselves, they're basically admitting that the central banks and the Davos set will be in charge until the end Mm. of time. And the best you can do now is to basically march down the street and make these demands on technocrats to save you instead of actually making decisions in the office that you're currently occupying. Well, actually, that brings us on really nicely on onto the question of kind of who's doing hyperpolitics, who are the actors, the institutions, and you write in the article, what passes for political action is monopolized by flash mobs, NGOs, and philanthropists with weak democratic mandates and non-existent membership bases. And so and one way that you also describe this, it, it, which relates very closely to that, is that you don't have masses and mass politics, but you have a swarm where 
kind of groups of people, um, crowds perhaps rather than masses, crowds appear at certain moments around determinate issues and can be quite angry and violent and then it dissipates all very quickly. Um, and that I guess is 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 a, definitely a feature of of hyper politics. It's something which is I guess a feature of anti politics in that you know people came out on the streets to denounce the political establishment um, as a whole. You know you can think of the occupation of squares for example. And but here you're saying maybe it's something different where it's kind of about issues sometimes making specific demands, not just um, a kind of rejection of the establishment. Um, I, th I wanted to ask you, because there's, there's some um, interesting bodily corporeal metaphors in the article. Um, one comes from Deleuze and Guattari, uh, bodies without organs. And another one is uh, the politics today is, you know, a head without a body and a body without a head. Uh, do you care to explain these, uh, these corporeal metaphors? Here to explain, yeah. Jesus. So, like, uh, uh, no, sorry, that, I shouldn't have phrased it. it. Yeah, no. <laughs> it like, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Are these? I you take my, responsibility my, my, for these bodies. My question would be: Are these compatible? Like, is it yeah. a body without a head and without organs, or is it a head without a body but with organs? I think um, I think they're compatible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I okay. mean. And, we maybe we're mainly talking about the brain, which is an organ. So in that sense, it's perfectly compatible. Um, but the heads with our bodies and bodies with our heads analogy actually comes from the American sociologist Theda Scotchpole, who uses it in her work on the specific history of American NGOs and American uh, non nonprofit organizations. And she describes a shift since the 50s and 60s where many of these voluntary civic associations actually had large membership bases, even when they were passive. But from the 60s and 70s onwards, these NGOs actually lose a large part of these members while at the same time gaining more financial and institutional power than they've ever, ever had before. So they don't have a body or any sort of internal metabolism anymore. They don't have internal membership bases they can appeal to while at the same time they become ever more brainy in that they have large think tanks attached to them. They have a lot of, uh, for example, VC or philanthropic money they can use. This makes them a very powerful head. But then you look at things such as Extinction Rebellion or some of the flash mobs and climate marches we saw last year, and they clearly refuse to institutionalize or refuse to professionalize on any level. So for the anti-police brutality protests of the last year, there were no membership lists. It was basically like receiving a text for a party in the middle of the night, and then you'd go there, you'd have a protest, and then people would disperse afterwards. Um, and I think there you can at least make a comparison between the 6th of January insurrection, as it will say, or just the mob, and the anti-police brutality protests, is that there were both extremely potent and intense happenings as they were going on, but the institutional legacies are very, very weak, not to say non-existent. So the actual legacy of the anti-police brutality movements is that, of course, this was a big change. A police officer actually got convicted, while at the same time, if you look at all of the police departments in the U.S. that defunded themselves or that were defunded last year, have actually all got their funds back. So that has been completely reversed. While at the same time, it's not entirely clear that anything of that QAnon or Trump mob has actually coagulated or has actually become anything more permanent. So this is, again, the best example of how you can have very intense and direct political mobilization and politicization in real time while leaving almost no institutional traces, even in the shorter term. Um, and I think that is what I'm 
trying to get it with the high politics label. Yeah, I guess my question would be, is it like, is it because the institutions don't exist to do it differently? Um, or is it that there's actually a kind of, a f- not a fear of institutions, but a, a kind of a, a, a distrust of any kind of political institution making? So you have like, I think, you know, I think it could it could be both. But I just wondered what you what you thought about that, because it's clearly one of the kind of central characteristics of contemporary politics is that it's almost completely disintermediated with with a few exceptions but like yeah what what explains that i i think it's a bit of both i think the institutions are not available insofar as civil societies mainly dominated by these ngos or these professional network institutions that can't really work with membership bases because that will create conflict between the base and their elite donors At the same time, I think there's also a deeper sociological or, dare I say, anthropological change where certainly on the internet or with an exclusively digital civil society, exit costs for entering and leaving groups become so low that people actually find it very, very difficult to remain in certain organizations. Um, So it simply means that institutions are not available, but if you think of creating institutions, you have to work with people who have a sense of institutional loyalty or are quite mobile, which makes it very, very difficult to form permanent bonds. And in many ways, the internet gives a substitute for that. It serves that you can have long-term engagement on the internet itself. But um, as we all know, you can log off very cheaply as well. And the amount of social stigma that is attached to logging off, I think, is still quite negligible compared to these other civic assets. Mm. Yeah, and it's where it's a world where it's a, or rather, it's a scenario where the world of work is a reflection of the world of politics, or maybe the other way around. People, uh, despite all the uncertainty that it causes, have a desire to be kind of self-employed or to be your own boss and whatever, um, and don't want kind of any long-lasting commitments of being in an organization and working your way up, for example, or whatever it might be. Um, and you know, politics seems to be the same. Um, I, 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 and I think. I, to some degree, that points to something that is much wider across society, because this is maybe something that maybe we all between ourselves disagree on this. I don't know about where this uh, hyperpolitics, you know, who the practitioners of hyperpolitics are, because I think Phil or, or George asked earlier, you know, is this just the kind of PMC? Is this the kind of professional class liberals doing this? And I, I don't think that's right. I think it is at the very least uh, what we're seeing is a politicization of the middle class. I mean, this is something that we wrote in the end of the end of history that this period is seeing um, the entry into politics of whole swathes of the middle class who otherwise would have been pretty quiescent because by and large politics worked for them or, or the way that society was structured worked for them and they were pretty happy to be quiet. So unless you were part of an intellectual strata um, or, you know, were in the media or something, you probably weren't didn't really have opinions about, you know, uh, very much other than maybe who the president of the United States was. You're like, oh, yeah, that George Bush is an idiot. But, you know, it doesn't go beyond that. It's not like Trump, you know, during the Trump period where Trump became the issue at every dinner table, no matter where you were, you know, how far, however far flung it was from the United States. Um, so I, I, my, I guess, hypothesis is that it's a politicization of the middle class and a splitting of the middle class. So the more traditional petty bourgeoisie owners of small business and whatever kind of radicalized rightwards and that the liberal uh, professional classes, people who work in large organizations and corporations, um, in especially in areas like academia and the media and so on, uh, producers of ideas, uh, politicized leftwards and leftwards and scare quotes because they politicized leftwards, especially on kind of cultural issues rather than economic issues. That's my kind of take on that. 
Um, I don't know if you agree with that or if you think that's it's even more broader, that it's filtered down uh, even wider in society. I take the point, I mean, I take the point, Alex, just before, uh, if I could interject, but I take the point, it's not just kind of um, the left PMC, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that it splits along a simple kind of left-right axis either, uh, in the sense that if we think about responses to the lockdown, you know, at the forefront of, um, say, lockdown skepticism or some of the protest marches against vaccine mandates and so on and the health passes a lot of small business owners um and they're they're defending you know they're defending civil liberty as well as their own um you know social position and economic interests and that doesn't seem to me to be to neatly fit a kind of a radicalization rightwards in any kind of meaningful sense, right? Or the fact that the the people who have been most supportive of, um, you know, stronger state responses and stronger state authoritarianism with them in response to COVID and lockdown have been um, the PMC or those uh, left, you know, kind of politically left liberals, but more in favour of um, authority, you know, authoritative responses by the state um, and strong arm tactics. So I take the point, but I'm not sure that it that the what we actually see is politicization along the traditional left right axis. Mm. No, and I think this is continuous with what you've put forward in your own work is that there is a structural decline or a structural erosion of that left right cleavage as the structural cleavage of so much politics. And I think what I'm discussing with the, the what I'm discussing with the hyperpolitics is also about an acceleration towards a form of politics in which left and right becomes ever more confusing and ever more ideologically diffused insofar as there are plenty of issues in which the the classical left and the classical right position are simply just irretrievable because they mean Mm -hmm. so little also in organizational terms anymore. Um, And again, I think we should look beyond the middle class and see it very much as a cross-class phenomenon so what are you looking at football matches? What are you looking at the arts? What are you looking at academia? But also when you're looking at the very highest echelons of the corporate world, there is a sense that there are very, very big political imperatives uh, on which are quite institutionally ambitious at times, but which are very, very narrow in their concerns. So for example, in the US, there are so few people left in the US who would deny that, for example, racial inequality in any way a massive, massive issue for that country. At the same time, these behavioral and these affective changes, which people require for racial equality to become less acute, almost have no redistributive or no economic consequences whatsoever. So you can have a perfectly racially tolerant society in which there are no racial prejudices or biases whatsoever, but which racial inequality in economic terms is still staggeringly high because no one can actually think of the fact that there must be a bigger structural issue at play here. And this is precisely in the way in which hyperpolitics is actually damaging is that everyone can be completely hysterically worked up about these issues while at the same time never thinking through the question of, okay, what would it mean if you actually want to save racial economic inequality if you don't want to redistribute, it, uh, redistribute wealth, for example? Yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the the whole, it's the only thing which can be competed over is the whole th- thing because the different parts with competing interests aren't you know aren't represented and don't 
don't um, battle off against each other. So you either reject it or embrace it in as a whole. Yeah. Which, which also then leads to that kind of hyper moralized and conflictual um, sort of situation. Yeah. So we're going to come on to the we're going to come on to the cultural question in just a second. But uh, listener, if you're liking what you're hearing, why not subscribe to BungaCast? Uh, you can subscribe to us on Patreon, but also to make sure that you get all our free episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also a plea: uh, why don't you rate and review us? We'll also take negative reviews. That's cool as well. Um, but tell us what you think and follow us on social media. Uh, tell your friends as well, whether it's in in real life or even your special internet friends who maybe in some ways are closer to you than even your in real life friends. Um, that's the world that we're in right now. Anyway, so uh, on, on to culture wars, because um, I think this is a big question. Um, I don't have um, I don't have my own mind made up on it. Um, what strikes me is that this hyper-politicization is, is in, in a sense always channeled into culture wars, into these kind of um, media discourse driven polarizations, um, which supposedly take a kind of left right form or liberal versus conservative form. Um, and, you know, the US provides the best example of this. But as Anton has been saying, they often don't fit the coordinates of what we would traditionally understand as left or right. Um, so for me, I, I, I think that a lot of these questions end up coming down to not ownership or control or how society is structured, but about questions of who you are. And that's in part part of the reason why they can be so fractious and so needly and uh, so irritating and anxiety inducing is because it's always about who you are and what type of person you are, what category you fit into, rather than about, hey, how are we going to change society? Are we going to change it in this direction or another? Um, so my conclusion is still that it is culture war, albeit culture war that is different from what uh, is kind of the template of culture war taken from the United States post the 1960s, but especially in the 1980s and 1990s, which generally concerned moral issues about abortion, about homosexuality, about education, how to raise your children, those sorts of questions to a certain extent about race as well. Whereas now things which are more properly political, things about, for example, immigration, um, still end up collapsing into the template of culture war, of this kind of relatively sterile polarization, which is always comes down to who are you rather than trying to build solutions uh, or, or to build organizations or institutions uh, which can see through real political demands. I think the case of France with Eric Zemmour is a very telling example of what we're talking about, insofar as it clearly testifies to a degree of Americanization or the importation of culture war templates, which didn't quite exist in that form in France before. Also with the rise of these commercial news channels, which are very much like the American Fox um, ecosystem, which France had versions of before, but which weren't quite as present until the French public sphere properly digitalized in the 2010s, where you had the rise of these digital parties with Mélenchon, but also someone like Zemmour really, really became prominent and famous through people watching clips and excerpts of his journalistic work on YouTube. So he's very much sort of political journalist turned pol uh, political entrepreneur that attained or that thanked a lot of his popularity to a digital audience. But at the same time, if you look at how Zemmour actually compiled this program, it's culturalist or reductionist to the extent that 
he really does believe that by getting rid of the entire immigrant population and by throwing out all the Muslims or rounding them up in camps or stopping family reunions, you will find a solution to all of the economic problems that have ailed France in the last 40 years, from massive deindustrialization to social penury you get in these regional, uh, these regional cities. And his proposal, for example, to reindustrialize France is literally just to cut taxes, which is a method that has been applied <laughs> with, with, I mean, amazing. More of the, more of the same medicine that made you ill in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So there is intense, intense turbocharged cultural warring in an American style in France. It's hyper-political insofar as everyone has a view on Zemu and he's ex- extremely divisive in all these social quarters. But then when it comes to the actual question of policy, the solution is either just throw all the foreigners out and that will solve the issue of the state deficit or will solve the immigration problem and cut taxes and then we'll get all our industry back at the same time. So that really shows the limit of that hyperpolitics, both from the ref, uh, right and also from the left, insofar as there's just no concrete plan on what he's actually going to do about the shrinking industrial base of France, except for saying, well, we'll just get rid of the Muslims. Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of one of the reasons I'd probably disagree with Alex's presentation to, to a certain extent, is that it's it seems like those sorts of, or there's always... It seems to me like it's important always to assume that there's a material basis to these cultural issues, that it's not, there is, there might be a cultural um, element or display, but the, you know, some people win and some people lose. And that's ultimately what's, you know, what's kind of drawing it, driving it on. So I guess the, like, maybe this is the thing about hyper politics is that, and I don't think this is what you were saying, Anton, but some people sort of suggest that this is, it is just, um, just moral politicization or just um, culture wars. But of course, these things, ultimately, if you're talking about cutting taxes, which was kind of like a weird anti-homeopathy. Um, I was trying to think if there's any like medical analogy for like something made you sick, so macro dose it and it will make you make you better. But um, yeah, but there's always like these it's, kind of It's like issues. Munchausen syndrome. Um, it's neoliberal Munchausen syndrome. I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah. not a bad way to describe it. Yeah. Um, any I think reverse homeopathy is 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 better, but that doesn't or reverse <laughs> vaccination. Anyway, whatever. Um, I did have a point and it was a very simple one actually, and I probably could have made it a lot more straightforwardly, just that it's like these the questions of ownership and control, sure, sideline, but that doesn't mean that the it's just recognition. I think there's always the the kind of the so parlaying I, I of, think of, of virtue into yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that Zemmour uniquely and quite innovatively has a plank that calls for reindustrialization, which is quite a daring proposal to make, certainly within the sort of orthodoxy of, of so much of the French right, which has been worried about it in, in shrinking industrial base, but which hasn't actually come forward with these explicit calls to reindustrialize the country. And he's now actually doing that. That is not just a cultural war issue. It can't be reduced to culture. But at the same time, if you look at the proposals or the solutions he's actually putting forward, they're just pitiful and frankly laughable compared to the, the size of the challenge he's actually pointing at. I think, I mean, it, it also touches upon something else, I suppose, which is that um, this kind of 
builds off what Alex was saying, but it goes even beyond questions of ownership and control, right, to some degree. I mean, questions, say, of industrial, you know, how far is the deindustrialization of these countries, you know, beyond kind of questions of employment and jobs, um, but also thinking about geopolitics, questions of economic efficiency, about questions of the necessity of economic self-sufficiency and preparedness for um for kind of unexpected or well uh, not to say unexpected because the covid pandemic wasn't unexpected um but for shocks such as a viral pandemic um industrialization is a question that goes beyond just ownership and control it seems to me um and so that the scope of these political questions is broader than just questions of power and perhaps that's also you know i mean i think perhaps that's also where the the culture wars limits of politics are visible because i think occasionally um occasionally questions of ownership and control will creep into these debates and they'll take particular kind of peculiar forms you know in say like the kind of the woke critique that our institutions and our societies are still dominated by the legacy of racial you know racial em- european colonial empires that evaporated decades, if not centuries ago, in some instances. Um, but they'll make the case that they're still dominated by that and that we need, you know, these societies need to be restructured or um, reconfigured in some way as part of a program of decolonization. And so that touches upon ownership and control, but in ways that are totally hallucinatory and have no actual connection to the existing distribution of power and resources in contemporary society. But nonetheless, they you know, they kind of engage those questions, even if in an ultimately illusory way. Yeah. Whereas it seems to me there are kind of other questions and perhaps ones that are also being raised by certain figures, um, such as Zimur, for instance, that uh, that go beyond questions of ownership and control, but that do require political responses. And another example, I mean, and one that we've kind of talked about at length on this podcast would be, for instance, membership of the Eurozone. Um, or say capacity, you know, whether or not you have sovereign a sovereign capacity to issue and control your own fiat currency, um, as well as say or membership of the European Union or these kinds of questions. What does it mean to be? Um, what does it mean to have popular control over certain kinds of governmental decision making? Those are political questions. I think in specific policy domains that go beyond just broad kind of issues of ownership and control. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And and so maybe cultural war isn't the right term, but I think I'm still trying to capture something that I, and I think here we're all on the same page, that on the one level, it's kind of spectral and spectacular rather than concrete, and that there doesn't seem to be any movement beyond these kind of fixed position. So yes, it's competitive. Yes, it's agonistic. Yes, you have these two camps who touch on, for example, the issue of vaccination. Um, At least theoretically, it touches on very serious questions about the limits of state power, of of, uh, state intrusion into private life, about coercion, about the role that the state should play in guaranteeing health, all these very important questions. And at the same time, it seems to somehow, I don't know, produce a kind of sterile polarization with a lot of heat and noise, but without any movement whatsoever. It's a little bit like a a kind of 
uh, Verdun scenario or something where you're just lobbing bombs and there's just this mutual destruction, but there's no advance whatsoever. And that's what I'm, I guess, what I'm trying to capture, and and also the way in which it becomes very intimately tied to one's identity, right? And that's the kind of maybe cultural aspect that you know what side, whether you're anti-vax or you know uh, pro-vaccine passes, is very much about kind of what milieu you inhabit um, and and a defense of that milieu, and that and and uh, um, also a, and one other aspect of this is a mutual incomprehension, right? So it's not that we're we are clear about what the terms of the debate of the vaccination thing are because we question the very basis of what we understand to be at stake here. So for the side who are, you know, in, insisting that you need to force vaccinate everyone or institute vaccine mandate, you know, it, there's this, an idea that I couldn't possibly understand why someone might be resistant to getting vaccinated. Um, and it is, you know, um, and that there's no question of state power here. You know, what, what's what's the issue? You know, why are you raising this issue? And for the other side, it's so blindingly obvious that this is a huge oppressive thing and that they couldn't possibly understand how come so, so on the other side could be so blithe about saying, yeah, just forcibly vaccinate everyone. And this mutual incomprehension is something which is perhaps unique to our times, I think, that, that there's no general kind of consciousness about what what is really at stake, perhaps. No, and I, I think we need to be very clear that it can't be reduced to some of these almost banal culture war topics, which are almost non-topics, whether we're talking about the, the color of bathroom doors towards uh, what writers go in the syllabus. All of the phenomena we're talking about have, or at least hint at a policy content, which is quite ambitious and quite clear, whether we're talking about Zemmour's plea for reindustrialization, whether we talk about the BLM demand for reparations or the vaccine question, there are some big, big institutional policy questions in the background. While at the same time, the way those debates get channeled just means that none of the actual institutional mediation can actually ever take place. There is just no sense about how you might shift the parameters of some of these questions. And instead, they just get tied to these political opinions, which become identities, which turns them into a trench war, as uh, Alex concluded. Okay, so I mean, to bring it back, I guess, to some very important political economic trends, um, and it's something that you kind of hint at in the article, Anton, it's that, you know, is there real politicization going on? Yeah, we've been talking about these issues, you know, you've mentioned like BLM, vaccination, um, immigration, and so on, reindustrialization. Um, but the general um, trend seems to be to a political setup where central banks are ever more important, where they're executive and sovereign even, uh, and that the means of government are cash transfers uh, with very other little government in the, in the middle of that. Uh, and then all the rest of what you know, would formally constitute politics is policing, um, state repression in some form or another, and media discourse, which doesn't seem to gain any traction on the really important stuff. Do you think that, and I don't know, like, do you, one, do you agree with that characterization? And two, um, where does that leave this hyperpolitics? I mean, is it just still more futile scrambling and noise, or does it at some point begin to gain traction? I think what we're talking about is basically a process of disintermediation, which we are familiar with on the level of civil society, which is the Peter Mayer Void story we all know. 
but which also happens on the level of the state, which is that you have disintermediation of the state from that civil society as such, in which the involvement of the state in the economy, certainly under the era of neoliberalism, becomes far more abstract and becomes more detached. So there is a role for the state as market police or as the organ that actually protects markets, but for the rest, there is no concrete involvement it has in economic activity. And certainly after COVID, that has beginning to change insofar as there's a pastoral or protective role in the state, which is everyone acknowledging at the same time. And I, I would say that hyperpolitics is the expression of a new consciousness of contradiction, or at least a sense that the role which the state was relegated to in the neoliberal era or even before 2008 and then after 2008 is no longer viable. But we're still in this transitional period in which it's not at all clear whether that new state is functioning or has actually conceptualized its role and what it mostly does is like mole whacking or resorting to the most authoritarian measures to actually solve that deficit of legitimacy. So it's, this intermediation doesn't end whether on the level of civil society or on the level of the state, but the degree to which the state relates to society and the society relates to the state has changed insofar as that passivity or that complete retreat has um, has ended. So that comfortable situation is really, really open. I mean, it, it makes me wonder whether, you know, it's kind of more like moving to a 19th century scenario where there's a lot less thickness of the state, you know, of layers of the state between cit citizen and state. The difference, of course, and where there is a lot of thickness, I guess, is in policing in different forms of social control, which leaves us rather in a more difficult situation, if you're trying to think of it from a kind of revolutionary perspective, uh, than in the 19th century, because there they might be, you know, police and whatever, and the army uh, to, to, to crush you, but you don't have all these very much more sophisticated forms of surveillance and control uh, that they did in the 19th century. That's just something that kind of sprung to mind. I don't know if anybody wants to take that one yeah. up. Yeah, no, I, I've been thinking about this side, like, I think it's um, in David Harvey's brief history of neoliberalism, where he takes, basically takes the point from Gramsci that like the state now includes the state and civil society um, to be kind of crude and blunt about it. And it's like, yeah, I think that is true that the, the governing institutions are at the same time that the state has lost some great capacity. It has uh, gained a whole sort of set of arms length and, um vaguely related more or less related kind of civil society institutions and they're not all necessarily uh policing or coercive like um, in in content but certainly like the um the i can't remember what what, what word in fact or, or how uh, harvey exactly describes it but i think it's it's essentially correct that that's the near level model of governance doesn't just include the state um but it also includes large parts of civil society as well yeah, so I mean, civil society is absorbed into the state, but then there is no kind of real civil society left there. Is that is that sort of the idea? I know. I think it's like it's not that there's real or not real civil society. It's just that like the um, the some of the the um, con consent content uh, consent generating functions of um, of the state, or which were probably carried out by the state. Are now outsourced to um, civil society mm, yeah. organizations. So yeah, it's, I think he, I think it, that's he does talk about in terms of of governance, and that's the idea that kind of unity of the state and various civil society actors. Yeah, well, far more far more sophisticated forms of propaganda, I guess, than uh, than maybe there were in the past. 
I wanted to move on to one other aspect that you draw upon, Anton, and you draw upon a term used by Mark Fisher, which is Stalinism without utopia. And that, I think, specifically refers to online or online-style hyperpolitical discourse, which I think everyone in this call, everyone uh, listening to this is uh, intimately familiar with. Um, and uh, you hate it, but you still do it. <laughs> um, and I, I, I wanted to kind of speak for yourself, Alex. Well, well, I, I, we, you know, whether you like it or not, it, 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 uh, it's always interested in you, and the discourse comes and envelops you. You might, and, uh, you might not like it, but you have to go along with it. Yeah, what you're saying. And it is, and I, but I, what I want to draw upon because I, I don't want to talk about, you know, and, and have a kind of general complaint about, oh, it's so annoying how Twitter is, right? I think what's more interesting is to try to see whether this, these kind of modes of discourse are actually now filtering into the real world and that this is kind of the form that hyperpolitics takes in a more generalized sense. And let me just quote from the quote from your article, if you don't mind. Um, it's, uh, it's an ascetic aesthetic with highly judgmental norms for interpersonal engagement, rigid enforcement of mores and libertine abstentionism now mediated through new digital platforms, but without the utopian calculus that justify the cruelty of the commissar and the party official. So I, we were just discussing this before you came on, uh, Anton, and you know th that element of kind of uh, rigidly enforcing norms and mores seems very obviously to be the case with kind of liberal identity politics. But I'm wondering whether this Stalinism without utopia applies to the kind of hyperpolitics across society, as you described it, it's a mood across society, do you think that applies? Do you think that description applies? Yes, and I think we should point out the contradiction which Fisher himself was onto with the internet is that we remember the internet as being designed or first being conceived as a sort of normless, uh, anti-authoritarian space for connection, which would supposedly remedy all the vertical or the hierarchical aspects of those other organizational forms we knew from the 20th century. So it's a purely voluntary association which people can enter into and which they can have forms of connection which are no longer possible in these other institutions which are declining or which are being rejected because they're precisely overtly authoritarian. And what you see in the 2010s, but certainly today, is that the internet begins to reproduce forms of connection which are highly claustral and suffocating, but which also have weird forms of discipline and highly normative features, which we tended to associate with those more authoritarian social forms from the 20th century, but they don't actually have the same cohesion as, for example, a party, a union, or a neighborhood association as we knew it from the 20th century. So the internet has this kind of authoritarianism without authority or an enormous capacity to police behavior and to make sure that everyone develops uh, self techniques for self-interrogation, but without any concrete organizational goals. So the question is like, what is this actually serving or what is the utopian horizon we're all heading towards? Or what is the point of the discipline you're trying to enact on people at this point? And I think there the analogy with the COVID state is just very, very clear insofar as you have a state that realizes it has to take on a protective and a pastoral role, it has to maybe engage in active coercion or it has to manage and directly intervene in, into the economy, but it doesn't actually have the authority to, to do it. And there, the difference with the 19th century, which was very much a pre-democratic age, is just very explicit in that their states could still claim that, well, we don't need the democratic mandate. Uh, we're states which are still heavily populated by aristocracies and we rule simply because it's our birthright and the unwashed masses, masses should simply have nothing to say about that. 
in a post-democratic age in which we're in today, there is a sense that you need some kind of mandate to enact all these measures, but politicians or even administrators don't actually know where that mandate is supposed to come from. So you need like discipline and coercion and hierarchy, but you're not clear in whose name you're actually being so authoritarian at the same time. And mm. you see this just very, very clearly in European code responses or with someone like Macron is the best example of this postmodern despotism is that Johnson is another example of this where there's this constant sense is that they don't want to do this. They don't want to enforce these lockdowns. They don't want to lock people inside, but we simply have to. So it's, it's like a parent that has no authority vis-a-vis -vis their child, but is trying to do special pleading with their child and say like, you know that you don't respect me. You know that I'm lying. You know that I'm useless, but please just do what I ask. And if you don't, then I will actually enforce very, very harsh penalties. And in fact, in fact, Macron might have briefly broken with that, with his uh, statement that he wants to emmerder the les Français, you know, he wants to piss off the French so much until yeah, they but, actually go and get vaccinated. The, the weird thing but, is, you're not, you're not going to piss off your children, right? That's not how you discipline children <laughs> or in that true. point. This, it's, it's, and he's it's, not coercing them. And he's still not coercing them. He's not literally yeah, yeah, forcibly yeah. vaccinating them, which would be more honest, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not even paternalistic in that sense. It's this very weird, almost fraternal sense of I'm going to coax you into doing this without actually assuming that, that that's what I'm doing. It's like a, it's like a, a parent in a kind of American tv show where they try and like buddy up to the to the kid and so they've they've like undermined any authority so when they do have to do some disciplining it is kind of annoying the the the, the kid into doing something by like posting on their social media and like embarrassing them in front of their friends until they're like oh fine all right dad i'll do it then whatever so basically i'm saying that macron is a, a bad parent to the to the french they should. Um, and I, I, someone at Damage Magazine, I think it was Benjamin Fong, used this uh, metaphor quite recently as well, is that one good way of conceiving the return of the state in the COVID era is that neoliberalism very much saw the complete retreat or the separation between society and the state, as far as the state completely gives up its presence within society. And it's like uh, a couple that divorces and the husband moves out and only the mother, mainly the market, remains. And now suddenly the father is back after a divorce of 20 years and has to reclaim it, his authority vis-a-vis -vis the children. But obviously the children don't know him at all and have never experienced, uh, experienced parental authority in that sense. So he has huge, huge difficulty imposing his decisions on them because they're like, who are you? Uh, what is your role in this family? And why should I even listen to you? Because... I don't recognize you as my father anymore. Well, and it's also like one of the siblings, not all the siblings, actually, there's probably maybe only one out of the four siblings who's like, no, daddy, you need to come and really father us properly. Be be more heavy handed. What the hell are you doing? You've been away for all this time. Now come in and actually exert your your, your function as a father. Um, I think that is quite a good metaphor. We should maybe maybe come back to that. One other thing just on, uh, on uh, Stalinism without utopia, surely this reality, if it is indeed that, is the centrist dream because for precisely for a kind of uh, you know capitalist centrist, it's that the problem with Stalinism was precisely the utopia. The rest of it was fine, but actually, if you can denude Stalinism or remove the utopian element of Stalinism, you know, basically kill off any kind of grand dreams, the elements of kind of social control and discipline and all the rest are actually quite welcome. Yeah, are we talking about online internet wars or just sort of general liberal? 
mentality around it. Because I, I do, there's this authoritarian impulse in a lot of contemporary liberalism, which I think is older than COVID. Which well, I, so I, I mean, what I'm referring to specifically, I guess, is the kind of mutual policing and self-policing that goes on. That would be a feature of totalitarianism. Everyone dubs in someone else, uh, grasses them up to the, to, the, to the secret police and so on. And that's something which obviously happens online, very obviously, but also it happens very much, I guess, in, in, in real life, in, in kind of contemporary hyper-politics. Um, and so this is a situation um, that we're all doing this not because of we might believe or not believe in in kind of the the people or whatever it is um, that there there is no kind of grand you know ideology um, grand public ideology we're all cynical about it but we still behave in all these kind of um, well we exert all these kind of policing functions of of one another and maybe also of ourselves. And I think the real difference with Stalin is also that there is a sort of revolutionary culmination or there's a utopian endpoint with which all of this cruelty and all of this violence can still be justified. So this is what I talk about with the utopian calculus. While what's so strange about some of the enforcing, for example, of racial etiquette, certainly in the US context, is that it's not entirely clear what even the, what is the end point because America is so irredeemably racist. Most of the Western world is so irredeemably racist that there is, there is simply no way this can ever be redeemed. Uh, it's a form of neoliberal redemption politics which infinitely delays the point at which there will be any concrete outcome. And whatever you want to say about Stalin, there at least there was this idea of what red utopia is around the corner and will have uh, degrees of material wealth and degrees of freedom that will simply uh, unimaginable before. But here there is not even a point at which the redemption can be said to be fulfilled. It's just about assuming a consciousness of guilt, which doesn't lead anywhere. Well, the, the only way it can be redeemed is if um, if China takes over and then America is relieved of the uh, responsibility to be any kind of exemplar to the world. And it's yeah, irredeemable racism is the thing that brought it down. So it's kind of good, good riddance. So I just wanted to bring in one final issue, um, which we skipped over earlier, but um, we should take the opportunity, that's a, that is the 6th of January, to discuss uh, civil war, because that seems to fit quite closely with hyper-politicization. I've just got a news alert here um, that Biden has just said in reference to the 6th of January last year, um, are we going to be a nation that accepts political violence as a norm? Are we going to be a nation where we allow partisan election officials to overturn the legally expressed will of the people? Are we going to be a nation that lives not by the light of the truth, but in the shadow of lies? At the same time as this, uh, it's not just politicians' declarations, but military strategists, people working in military and you know, kind of think tanks, um, have been talking both actually in France as in the US about the threat of a, of a civil war. And I wonder how seriously we should take this and also what purposes it serves, because I am, sus I am suspicious that it rather serves elite purposes to talk up civil war, which is really a very radical difference to the post-political era of the 90s and 2000s and the emphasis on consensus. Did Biden actually answer all those rhetorical questions? Are they going to be a nation of all of those things? Or did he just like... But, yeah, he, but, but they were all non-sequiturs. He's like in, in the bathtub. Yes, please, more candy. And, you know, it just didn't really make any sense. Who doesn't want more candy? I mean, no, that's... that's right. Indeed, indeed. That is the real non-rhetorical rhetorical question. But I think, I think you did have... A... Did have a more serious point. We, I mean, we've talked about um, civil wars before, not just in our own the civil war style bickering within the within the podcast. But yeah, so maybe that's a question for Anton um, more than uh, me and Phil. You know what we think about it? 
No, I think Phil is the real academic specialist here. I, I think it's a hugely unlikely outcome, given how demilitarized so many societies are on that level. But it's also that hyperpolitics entails a degree of hyperpolarization precisely because it's so organizationally aphatic or so organizationally vague. I don't see how we can descend into a situation where you actually have actual military blocks confronting each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a civil war specialist in terms of my academic area of expertise, but the, I mean, I'd agree with Anton, it's difficult to, um, it's, it's partly that feeling of disintegration after a period of liberal consensus, I think that, right. but at the same time, I think it's also um, a distinctively kind of social fragmentation that is the product of neoliberalism. So there is no, you know, there is, given the absence of the dysfunction or the crumbling or ineffectiveness of all sorts of political institutions and the absence of any of the pre-existing social solidarities that, um, such as nation, for instance, or even class in the case of um, pre-existing kind of um, trade unions, for instance, when you had much more of a organized um, labor movement, in the absence of those solidarities, that sense of fragmentation and dissolution is felt much more keenly, I think, and that feeds in to the suspicion, the paranoia, um, and the feeling of social collapse and disintegration, which obviously then feeds into the feeling of um, the imminence or the possibility of civil war, um, or violent and anarchic um, social dislocation, which I think is more likely, but then might get talked up as civil war. I mean, if you just think, you know, I mean, if you compare, say, today um, with, I don't know, the 1970s um, or the 1960s, when you think about the kind of the inner city riots in the wake of um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, or the fact that you had, you know, say, political assassinations in the US of major figures, not only, um, you know, not only a president, but RFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and so on, as well as, you know, the National Guard deployed to university campuses. There are other periods of, in many ways, much more violent upheaval in the US, um, where at the same time, it was, you know, I'm sure people felt uh, very similar kinds of sentiments that society was disintegrating or there could be some kind of racial um, civil war in the inner cities or something like that. And um, those were, the mood tells you, or those sentiments tell you about the mood of society, but they don't actually, there wasn't any realistic prospect of mass level violence um, that a civil war would entail. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's the the qualifier to the dissent, the, the feelings. I think the sentiment is genuine and it can be explained, but that doesn't that doesn't indicate the reality, like Anton says, of organized military factions um, battling for state power. And I think that's the other element as well. There is no the idea that you could have meaningful organized political competition over state power that belongs to a to a prior period. It's precisely the absence of um, meaningful political competition for state power that is our problem, right? The fact that uh, the ways in which you could structure that kind of competition um, and that you exercise state power in a meaningful and effective way, um, the absence of that is why it's so difficult to envisage what a civil war that would actually resolve the problems of society would look like. 
right? Yeah. So, I mean, if they, you know, it would be, um, you know, civil war of the kind of Lebanon style rather than civil war on the traditional kind of classical model of civil war that led to the formation of modern of modern states and modern nations. So, so bad, bad civil war, not good civil war. Is that what you're saying? We can have yes. <laughs> we can have civil we can have civil war, but not in conditions and not of the sort of our our end choosing. Well, or as okay, Axel so. Rose said, what's what's so civil about war anyway? Um yeah. There you go. But but I think I think that does feel what Phil said there is very well put. And I think it does then um beg the question of, you know, why in that case are very serious people, not just people in general in, in society worrying about a potential civil war, breakdown of society and so on, but that, you know, these very serious military strategists are putting out papers that kind of higher echelons of the French military putting out papers saying that, you know, we're very serious about a civil war in the coming decade. Um, what What's actually behind that? And when politicians take that up, what what's behind that? I mean, it does make me wonder whether hyperpolitics is potentially a way, and not suggesting that a conspiracy here, um, but that it becomes a way of managing uh, political conflict um, rather than uh, the actual bursting forth of genuine political conflict and contestation. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that um, before we close up. Otherwise, we'll just leave that as, a, as an open question. Um, and I guess what's all that's left to say is that if uh, society is indeed suffering from a political attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, what's the, uh, what's the political Ritalin? What's the political Adderall? Um, anyway, focused, serious, focused political minds. That's what we want here on BungaCast. Um, everyone's cringing um, and trying to look away from me right now. Okay, that's it from us for now. Uh, we are back next week. I think we are talking about uh, green pedophiles. Um, if you don't know what that is, uh, you'll have to tune in next week. Uh, that'll be an episode that's out on Patreon. So you'll have to subscribe to that. Bye-bye. And uh, thank you very much to Anton for, for joining us for uh, this great discussion. Thank you.